Welcome to Tea with Culture. I'm Hen Mizena, and with me today is Azim Hussain, an MFA candidate at VCU Arts in Virginia. And we're here to talk about his journey that started off as an illustrator and now he's pursuing the arts. Hello, Hi. <laughs> Hi, everyone. All right, so you are one year into your MFA program, and I'm interested in knowing, I think maybe you can tell us about your like how you started, like what led you to this MFA and what were you doing? Because I've seen your work around as an illustrator, I've seen your contribution in comics and, and zines, and uh, I know, you know you've participated with uh, you know, other artists and other illustrators. And you always do really interesting and, and quirky looking illustrations. And, I, and I've seen you tapping into uh, folklore and stories from the Arab world, and I think you try to present it in a contemporary style. Um, so yeah, um, could you tell me more about how, yeah, what in interested you in illustration and the kind of illustration you do and now your MFA? Sure. Um, well, I mean, uh, illustration kind of, uh, I stumbled uh, onto it as kind of a byproduct of um, when I was studying comics. I needed to tell stories or I felt the urge to tell stories and comics seemed like this really great way of doing it and drawing seemed something that was very well within reach. Um, before that, I had studied graphic design, and there was um, particular qualities of that discipline that were very attractive. Um, and I was re realizing that branding was one of the more interesting aspects because you could tell a story about the companies you're branding. Um, but then in re upon graduation, realizing that I had this these really good set of skills that I didn't want to use, um, I pursued another degree, not knowing what it was, but knowing what I liked to do. Um, and uh, I stumbled onto, like I said, illustration through taking comic courses while pursuing another BFA at the Art Institute in Chicago. Um, and there, um, at first, I was just drawing what I, the way I saw comics before. So, like, it was Marvel and DC, hyper masculine, hyper feminine superheroes. Um, and then I realized that that was kind of the same thing a lot of people were saying. And I realized that that in no way contributed to who I was. It was something I was consuming rather than something that made me what I was. And um, it's actually, um, I remember a very particular story where um, the night before moving to Chicago, I was at a, at a restaurant with my parents and uh, it was Ramadan and Feibuz was playing. And uh, it it was a particular song. It was very catchy, and we were talking. And Feruz's songs have this narrative quality, and I absolutely love that. You get very immersed into a world that she creates with rhythm and these beautiful character descriptions. Um, and there's always like some sort of you know exactly what the heroine looks like. You know exactly what the village looks like. And um, you know that dinner was over. Uh, next morning, we're in the car on the way to the airport, and I realized that I had food poisoning from the restaurant. And uh, to distract me from the pain, um, my mother and my cousin who were with me in the car started talking about that song. Wh which song was it by Feirouz? It was Hanna Sakran, which is one of my favorites. And uh, I can't remember what we were talking about specifically, but I remember laughing and it really helped. And about two months later, at this point I was living in Chicago, um, I got really homesick. And all I could think about uh, was Hanna Sakran. So I began reading the lyrics, and I'm not very, at that time, I wasn't very comfortable uh, with Arabic uh, literature-wise. 
and the more I read, the more fascinated I became. I would actually, a lot of my Skype sessions with my parents revolved around trying to understand the lyrics. And it wasn't just that song at that point. I was exploring um, a lot of the other songs that she, that were, that had stories and particularly Feruza's songs. And that led to um, my first attempts at making comics that weren't about superheroes um, without hyper-masculine, hyper-feminine characters. Um, and that led to one of my first uh, mini comics, which is like a, you know, like a 12 page comic. Um, and it was really inspired by a collection of Feirou songs, particularly Nahna Wal Amar Jiran. Um, and to tell you the truth, that was really for me, I felt like that was quite a pivotal moment in what I do. Uh, I realized the kind of stories I want to tell. I realized how I wanted to do it. And drawing suddenly seemed to me not just something I did to make pictures on paper, but it became the tool that. Um, not only did I express what made me what I am, but possibly found a way to connect to other people who identify with these stories. Uh, I thought, and you know, I also realized at that time, it was really strange that we all connected with these European fairy tales that we were read, uh, that were read to us in school. And that seemed, um, it's so strange that no one in the U.S. knew the stories that I was, like, that I was told when I was a kid. Shatir Hassan and Al Ghula and, uh, and there were so many other really small things and they permeate their way into even like idioms that, that older people use. Um, and, uh, you know, after that, I, um, I'd make these comics when I could. And when I couldn't, or, or when I needed money, I would uh, use those skills, drawing, to illustrate for clients. Um, and slowly, I kind of established a certain, you know, people would come to me for very specific kind of work. And it kind of, I'm really happy to say that it usually falls in line with folklore and, uh, and narrative. So um, I'm, I really never thought I'd get to that point when I started studying comics. Uh, and it's interesting, right? Because when you're within the Arab world, and I think when people are creating, especially with illustration and comics, and it's always, yeah, like for, I feel, you know, people in auto mode, right? It's always kind of trying to replicate what you see in superhero comics, you know, the Marvels and the DCs and that kind of style. And, um, and I don't know, is it something where even your education, because I'm curious, like during your studies, uh, you know, at university, even what, you know, whilst you were here in, in the UAE, was there like interest in, getting students to research and focus stories from the art world to then translate that in their drawings and illustrations? Um, yeah, I, well, I can't say that I haven't had support. Um, I feel like when I describe my experience um, in university here in Dubai, um, I've had a lot of, I've met a lot of uh, faculty and instructors that were very, very supportive of everything I wanted to do. Um, particularly teachers in fields that I chose not to continue in um, you know, when I take a graphic design course or an advertising teacher would really push me to research, uh, especially folklore narratives. And it was really great, but um, to say it as an initiative taken by these teachers to encourage other students who have no interest in the matter, I can't, I can't confidently say that I've ever seen that. Um, and there's still, unfortunately, I find um, in a lot of young people's uh, cultural or, or uh, visual understanding of the world comes from Western sources. And this I need, people do feel the need to replicate to be valid. And it's a very, um, it's a very difficult moment or it's a very difficult uh, place to be where you think I don't need uh, validity. I don't need to fit in with someone else to, for my work to be valid. And I honestly did not have that sense until 
I went to the U.S. for the first time, or for the first time for education. And when I was making comics, looking around and finding that everyone does their own thing. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's the beginning of something. And then I realized I don't. It doesn't have to be anything that exists currently. It could be something I develop. Um, and you know, I I feel a little um, maybe it's. Uh, it's only in a position of privilege where you can travel for education that you come to that realization. Um, and so, I don't know, I feel like that's probably something that as a collective, uh, collectively, culturally, um, in the Arab world, not just the UAE, that we need to instill in young people learning uh, you don't need validity from any Western source or any other source. You can do whatever you want to do, just do it to the best of your ability. Mm. And Sue and I even see like even in uh, like cartoons, right? So where, where for the longest time we see something that's trying to replicate that's Western and over the past few years I think local productions are trying to create stories out of here and you know where the characters look like people that we can relate to or characters that we recognize. But again, I don't think it reaches a mass audience. So it's just something that feels it's speaking to a small group and and yeah, and I'm always curious like you know when when can we start when can our stories be infiltrated to a wider audience within the region and, and beyond? So it's it's an interesting struggle, and I think, and I think you're in a, like you said, I think only when you're in a place of privilege when you travel, and I think these ideas start to formulate deeper in your mind where you want to pursue it and query it and research it versus maybe you take things for granted and when you're just. In, in home and home here, wherever, whether that's Dubai or any other city in the Middle East. Because uh, it, it's, what, yeah, what I feel like lacking is, you know, even like the font, the type of font you see in branding and everything just falls, follows a very kind of Western-centric sensibility. And I'm always curious about when you're living in the Far East where there's this very clear identity in, in, in their language. So even though things are bilingual, whether it's signs on the streets or, you know, maybe certain publications. And, and oh, no, this is lacking within the Arab world. Because even, even like the, the names, right? So they, they transliterate versus translate. So this is yeah. whether it's names of shops or even like names of movies when, you know, when I see a subtitled movie and the name of the film comes and it's, you know, like I last saw The Dark, the dark Tower and the title was The Dark Tower. You know, like it's like, <laughs> wait, why was that translated? You know, that Virgil, yeah. Muslim or something like that. So it's, it's really interesting, the whole thing with language and, and, and then going to the roots of culture and folklore and, mm -hmm. and how can that be brought to somewhere where it doesn't seem old-fashioned or, yeah. or uninteresting. Well, there are many obstacles to that. Um, I've recently become so you know thanks to Feyruz's lyrics, or like the Rahbani brother lyrics. I've become very aware of the the potency of the Arabic language, and suddenly I find myself full of um, regret, for lack of a better word, uh, or possibly remorse is more accurate. Where I I feel like I I wish I knew more about my language, but then you know thinking of younger me in school. Like completely having having to process these completely unappetizing books, unfortunately, and you know we as a kid and I remember like I remember vividly my English literature books uh, from the first grade until the sixth grade. Beautiful illustrations, um, the format of the book itself, the way you hold it in your hand, the excitement of the teachers, um, the complete use like uh, use of idioms in the works that kind of at some point you're like, oh wow, this is kind of like. You know, what this kid says to their imaginary friend in the storybook is kind of like what I said to my parents the other day. 
and it engages me in so many different ways. Meanwhile, the Arabic text didn't engage me that way. And, you know, unfortunately, most of the time, the teachers wouldn't, were from such a different world uh, that it was very hard to relate to me, to, this, uh, to relate myself to the subject. Um, and in English, it felt like the teacher was very much of the world I was in. Um, you know, not to mention that, you know, programs on television and, you know, and there's also like media, you kind of, um, the nicer magazines were in English, the nicer cartoons were in English. And so it feels like this is the de facto language of, of, um, that understands me. And now, you know, I'm, uh, reading Arabic dictionaries, trying to make connections between words during, in my own art practice, like, um, a recent, I had this recent fascination considering the political climate of the world. Um, and it's something as simple as the two words in Arabic for wall and ocean. Um, I, I, and I've spent like, you know, the last four months just reading into these words. So Arabic, the Arabic word for ocean is muhit, uh, which means that which surrounds you. And the Arabic word for wall is ha'it, which is a device mm-hmm. for surrounding you. And there's something so poetic about that. And there are possibly other words that you could use, but there is something to me so profound that couldn't possibly happen in English, uh, a language that is based on exacts and proper labels. Um, and, you know, th- now that I'm aware of this, I wish that it was instilled into my, uh, into my growing, like me growing up in school here, because that would really alter the way I think, I make, and possibly the way I interact with other people. Um, because you know, the, or I've slowly like been reading about this. The, I forget the name of the theory where the the language you speak actually shapes the way you think, um, and I'm finding that to be truer by the day. No, that's super fascinating. I mean, language on its own is, is it's so deep, especially with the Arabic. And I'm guilty of not spending enough time reading and understanding. And like you said, I think it's a generational thing, right? That from our parents onwards, where we've grown, where we're. Uh, exposed to English more than Arabic because at the time, you know, that's the better opportunities for jobs, etc. Right? And uh, and then when you grow up, you're like, wait, I didn't spend enough time reading enough Arabic literature, uh, etc. I mean, I remember me growing up, uh, the Arabic cartoon I would watch was Sindbad, which was Japanese anime, but it was dubbed in Arabic, but it was Fusha. Like today's Arabic dubbed cartoons is not Fushad Zami, right? Yeah. And and I'm like, oh my god, at least at least I had some kind of like you know proper Arabic when when I was watching it. And uh, and I remember as a kid and I understood it. Where I know now my nephews when I expose them to that, they don't necessarily understand that uh, the yeah. Fushad language. And it's like wow, this is such a, a shame. And you know how how to to change that. Uh, but yeah, I think it's something that will probably stay with you now. Now I think that you've got, you know, the maturity and, you know, the wisdom as one grows that I think, like, fine, yes, you missed out on those years, but it's there with you now and I don't think it'll ever go away. I hope not. <laughs> uh, but moving on now from being an, an illustrator, I know you've kind of, you're pursuing the arts. Yes. And, and I'm interested in that journey and what happened and what was the shift um, yeah, it's uh, it's actually been something I guess that has always been uh, been there. I mean, even studying graphic design, uh, like I said, very supportive faculty and instructors would really encourage an exploration um, into a more artistic interpretation of the design. Uh, even though a lot of the courses were pretty corporate, um, and I have to like I, I can say with confidence, we were technically equipped. We had all the right courses to make very good corporate work. Uh, but, you know, when I would go to my teacher and be like, can I brand a time travel agency? <laughs> and then, and, uh, and she would be like, 
yeah, go for it. And uh, that kind of was the beginning of, uh, of wanting to explore something maybe a little unconventional, something that uh, possibly uh, uses tools that are familiar to people and uh, kind of allow them to uh, kind of guide them into this other thing that I'm thinking about and possibly see how they feel about it. Um, and then there was, uh, after getting into comics, uh, distribute uh, after coming back from Chicago and had, having studied comics, the idea of how do I distribute these um, kind of pushed me further into art as well. Uh, so it's this publication that I don't want to sell because that would require some sort of um, uh, ass assessment of what it is. And I, that, I think that takes too long, but I want people to read these stories. And so suddenly, what if these books were for free and people can just take as many as they want? And this idea of distribution uh, ties into printmaking and uh, and people's voices and kind of having an idea and sharing it. And that um, I didn't realize it at the time, but that really uh, started uh, that kind of uh, that trajectory for me that I continue today with my work, even though I don't make comics as much. Um, and so then I was fortunate enough to be nominated and uh, accepted into the Sheikha Salama uh, Emerging Artist Fellowship. Uh, I was. So I started out in that. Uh, I got in based on the work I did with comic books. Um, and, you know, with my comics, I was slowly trying to eliminate uh, elements. So the first one that I had done for Sitka uh, during the Sitka Art Fair was in Arabic and English, but then realizing that there were people who couldn't read in Arabic or English, but I still wanted to, to get them as well to read the comics. So then the next year I would eliminate... Uh, color and words, and I tried to get away with as little as possible to get to some core that at the time I didn't know I didn't know what it was. Um, and then the fellowship happened, and suddenly I wasn't interested in comics anymore. Um, this was a really great, supportive uh, place with amazing people. I've made so many friends in that program that really encouraged me uh, to do sometimes really weird, absurd things that helped in my in my development of my practice. Um, and you know, suddenly the comic itself was was a detail, and I made away with that. And uh, towards the end, I was working with really large scale prints, um, but also they dealt with reproduction. The problem with that at that point was that I was I still found it very limited. So if it exists as a large print, it's co uh, contained within one room. How do people access it if they're not coming to this place? Um, and at that time, I began applying for grad school. Um, and I was looking into printmaking programs. Uh, so printmaking was something that resonated with me. The idea of, um, you know, it's less valuable than a one-off. Um, it can be reproduced, and its value, to me at least, did not come from uh, the care put into one object. It actually came from uh, its an intangible quality of, of the work. So if it's this beautiful idea, that idea does not, it doesn't matter whether it's reproduced a thousand times or five times or once, um, that idea is still beautiful. And um, printmaking was, I think, to me, the closest way of getting into that. And so I got into the program. And at first I was dealing with prints. And then um, at some point, I, I don't know what it was, but maybe cultural pressures. I was feeling very a combination of homesick and what am I doing here in this country, a completely different context than the one I've grown up in and the one I'm responding to. How do I get, how do I interact with people here? Um, it was really difficult. And through this frustration, um, you know, bits and pieces of, of life outside of school start becoming really important. And to me, one thing that stood out was uh, Nabulsi soap. 
and uh, that kind of led to the trajectory of the work now. So, to listeners who don't know what Nabulsi soap is, can you just elaborate oh, sure. in a few words? Uh, Nabulsi soap is a Castile soap that's uh, made in Nablus in Palestine, and it's kind of one of the Levantine soap centers. Uh, there's three main ones, which is uh, which are uh, Nablus, uh, Sidon in Lebanon, and Aleppo in Syria. And uh, basically, they, it's made with olive oil and lye. They've been doing them, uh, and you know there are slight variations to the technique and the ingredients based on the city. Um, a lot of Mediterranean cities do have similar soap recipes, but this has been done there for hundreds of years, um, and it used to be a thriving uh, industry. Uh, 200 years ago, and it's slowly disappearing. There's only, I think, two or three uh, manufacturers of Nabulsi soap in Nablus. Um, and uh, I don't know, there's something about that soap that's just so... Uh, it's so precious and so loaded and so cheap. At the same time, anyone can have Nabulsi soap. Um, and I think that, to me, is the essence of printmaking, really. It's so important and so distributed. Um, so yeah, I, I've been using Nabulsi soap for quite some time. I've at some point developed some sort of allergic reaction to soap. Um, and, uh, this is the only thing that worked for me. And, you know, being in the States was, and at some point running out of special pharmaceutical soap, I was like, I need, I need soap and I can't buy the store brand. So on Amazon, I found, I found some Nabulsi soap. It was like, you know, here you get four bars for 15 dirhams and there was like four bars for $50. <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, I was so, like, maybe just really homesick and really desperate for soap that I was like, yes, totally worth it. And uh, it struck, that's, that act struck a chord with me. And that kind of, uh, the, the rest of the work since that, from that point onwards, was um, me really trying to get people to realize that connection they have with something, regardless of how widely distributed it is, it's still precious, it's still really important, it can still be really loaded. That's really fascinating, and I know we talked about it before the interview about soap, and I thought of Mona Hatoum and how she's also made a body of work with uh, with Nabulsi soap and with their these maps as well. And and again, I think about home and 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 longing, and and I, I'm I'm assuming this wouldn't have happened if you were here. Like, I think this is you in the states, and I think also dealing with the political climate, which has not really been a very easy. Thing for a lot of people over the past couple of years, I mean, let alone in the States and across the world, right? Like, we were watching this crazy show, you know, from a distance, at least from my perspective, and, and, and like, oh my God, the world is just going even more crazier than, as, than we know it. And, and it's, and it's fascinating to me that, yes, just a, the, the simple soap is something that you latched onto, and that's become this core focus where you're making and, and you're giving, you know, it's there for people to take, mm -hmm. and, and I know you talked about uh, how, you know, it's a bit like you have to cover up and, you know, and the way you described it, I, I thought of Breaking Bad, like, oh, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> and, you know, this kind of like what kind of suspicion is, is, is happening whilst you're doing this there? Like, what is this brown person from the Arab <laughs> world making and distributing? You know? I was actually surprised that Amazon let me order about 20 pounds of lye without asking any questions. <laughs> Um, it was, uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, people do bring up Breaking Bad a lot, but not as much as they bring up Fight Club. Um, <laughs> <Good point. laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm really happy you, you bring up Munahatum because um, this, this goes back to what I said earlier about, like, being in a context that's so different from the one I grew up in. Um, Munahatum is someone who I've realized throughout, like, halfway through the work or halfway through last semester that um, there 
that I am very direct, directly um, speaking to that history that she's also addressing in the work. Not that I feel like the work is uh, the same, but um, I get a lot of Janine Antoni or Fight Club, and then I realize that you know, unfortunately, that lacking bit of context will lead to that that kind of conversation. And that's been difficult, but then again, that's why I make the project, so I can't decide whether it's a good or bad thing. Um, but uh, yeah, this this soap project kind of, um, it engages a lot of things. I mean, the political climate has really influenced um, several decisions I made with the soap. Um, before making the soaps, the Nabilsi soap, while I was, when I realized that that was really important to me, I was also reading about um, a particular history of maps, and I was drawn to one really um, amazing map around that was commissioned by the by in Venice to an Arab map maker who had moved to Venice for around, between seven and ten years to create this map, Al Idrisi. Um, and so to make this map, he would interview travelers and merchants, explorers, uh, and based on their interviews, he would uh, he pieced together this map, and it was so accurate that it was used as the world's most accurate map for 300 years. And, uh, you know, this is, of course, mind-blowing to me sitting at my desk all day where everything you research suddenly is the center of the universe. Um, and the, the map is actually, I mean, I look at it every day. And uh, it has no borders, and I think that's really beautiful. Uh, because also, keep in mind, borders at that time were completely arbitrary. Um, and it contains the names of the region written in Latin, but since he would interview people from different places, the names are all written in the languages spoken by the travelers. So a lot of the names are Arabic names, but written with Latin alphabet. And then I found out the Arabic name. So in English, the map's called the Tabula Rogeriana, which is Latin for Roger's book, because it was compiled as a book with this large map. And then when I found the Arabic name, oh my God, it was like a revelation, but also this moment of where I felt like, um, you know, me questioning, why am I here so far away from home? And then this name, um, which it, the name is Nuzhat al-Mushtaq fi ikhtiraq al-Afaq, which is like so poetry. poetic. Yes. It's like a poet, poet, a poem on its own. Yes. It, it, it's so brilliant. And it's really hard to translate, too, because it's the pleasant journey of the person who misses, but then that's such a reduced word. So I, w I prefer to translate it as uh, the person who is longing, and we'll get into who, what the longing is for in a bit, but it's the pleasant journey of the one who is longing to permeate the horizons. And this longing, suddenly, I realize is the, this ishtiyaq is the only thing that really justifies being away from home. Mm -hmm. Longing for betterment and, and seeking new information, but it's also uh, a longing for home. Um, and so to, the only justification is to have both longings at the same time. And, you know, the, my entire project has revolved around that word uh, in Arabic, mushtaq. Uh, and I just think it's so profound. And so uh, that kind of led, yeah, that fueled the project directly. So you've got one more year at university, and I believe you're going to continue with the soap and developing that work. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what this where this journey takes you and uh, are you intending to spend time in the States after your MFA or are you planning to come back here or you don't know? Um, I thought I knew but <laughs> I mean I, I feel that in life generally when I've made plans that were that long term I was deluding myself. Uh, before I got into graphic design I thought I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> when I got into graphic design I thought I was going to continue being a graphic designer that didn't happen. Uh, when I went to Chicago it was a complete whim. 
when I came back, I was like, I'll be a graphic designer. No, that never happened. And then now I felt like a few months ago, my plan for what I thought I was going to do after graduating has completely shifted. And not just because of large reasons from the powers that be, such as like political climate, but it's also things as, am I still interested mm -hmm. in my original plan? Um, I, my, my long-term goal, it's a very vague goal, but it's what I really want to do. I do want to teach. Uh, like I said before, I feel like um, coming back to the place where I grew up here in the UAE, and I, I feel like one of my missions would be to make people understand that they don't need validity. Um, I think that's really important, and I wish I had that. Um, not that I think it's the most important thing, and I'm projecting some sort of uh, myself onto every student ever, but um, that was a voice I really needed to hear, and I still feel that a lot of people know it now. Luckily, we, like with social media and the, the internet, there's no way that people don't know that their voice matters. Mm -hmm. I think it's just really different when you hear it from an instructor as opposed to the instructor telling you that, look at this school in the U.S. where they do these amazing whatevers. Um, it's really important, and I want to be that. I want to be one of those voices. I'm very lucky that um, in VCU I've met incredible faculty who have... Uh, I mean, I just watching them teach is really inspiring, and I, I feel like I need more. I want to be one of those people here. Uh, it's not obviously going to be the same. The U.S. is a very different climate than than it is here, um, and you know, I'm very fortunate enough that I was able to go study abroad. I'm very fortunate that um, I speak English really well, and I can understand Arabic, and I'm sensitive to the culture here. I'm, and I think for the most part, a lot of people in the UAE are very understanding of culture in, in uh, the U.S., and that's a very specific set of skills, and to not use those here in this community is, um, I mean, I think a, like a kind of a little disrespectful to all the factors that led or that put me in this position, and yeah, that's kind of the goal, if you will. <laughs> I know, I mean, things change, and I think you're at a stage where, yeah, it's all right to not be clear on what you want to do, and and yeah, life throws at you different things which lead you to do different things. But I think you would be a terrific teacher and a mentor. So I do hope, yes, eventually you do take on that role because I think we need people like you. And uh, yeah, I hope you make your way back here so to, to do that. Thank you so much, Azim. I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too. I did too. Can we see some of your work online? Yeah. Um, so my illustration work, which is the work I'm very comfortable showing, <laughs> is uh, www. Uh, A-Z-I-M-G-H dot com and I'm always A-Z-I-M-G-H in whatever social media platform. Okay. Um, as for the artwork, it's kind of I'm still in the process of becoming so um, I'm still not very comfortable sharing that just yet but you know if you see me around you can talk to me and I'll probably give you a bar of soap. Um, but um, hopefully, you know, after this MFA I'll feel uh, more developed and able to share that kind of work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe, download, and listen to Tea with Culture on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like this episode, please rate it and leave a review. Let us know what you think. You can also follow Tea with Culture on Twitter. Thanks again, and until next time.